All right, Salt City, let's talk literary genre. There's two teachers and one English major. They're like, yes, finally. Like, now we're cooking with gas as a church. Let's go. Uh, here's why I want to talk literary genre. Uh, we're about to get into the book of Exodus. I'm really excited about this series. Just as I've been reading this book, I've become more and more compelled by the absolute genius of this work. And the reason why I think we need to understand kind of what's happening in this book is because unless you know what you're looking for, I think you're going to miss it and not understand what this book has to say. This book that was written over 3,000 years ago has everything to do with your life and how you live tomorrow. But in, in order for that to really land and start to transform you the way that it's intended to, we've got to understand a little bit about what's happening within it and how to read it, okay? So here we go. Exodus is a narrative history. So it's history, meaning it's a recounting of true events. It doesn't allow you to think of itself as a myth or an allegory, because right off the bat, you'll see this if you look through the first chapter, it's, it's going out of its way to ground itself in specific dates, with specific names, in certain places. So it locates itself in northeast Africa, right around the modern city of Cairo. So, so it's history, but it's also a narrative, meaning it, it's history arranged as a story, and that story has a universal and timeless meaning and significance. I really don't want you to miss that. That's important. This story of Exodus that we'll be unpacking for the next several weeks has a universal and timeless meaning. So it's about their life, the ancient Israelites, but it's about our life. And so as we study Exodus, we're learning about them, but we're also learning about ourselves, we're learning about our world, and we're learning about how God operates in our world. Now, specifically as a narrative history, Exodus is an epic, meaning it, it takes as its topic these kind of grand sweeping themes. It's, it's dealing with sort of cosmic good and evil in the fight between those things. It's an adventure story. It's a story about a journey, a long journey that these people go on. Uh, it, it's got a clear evil villain that's kind of fighting with the unexpected underdog. We all love a good underdog story. Guys, the Bengals are in the Super Bowl. They haven't, they haven't won a playoff game since like 1900. I, there's like Cole, I, Cole Workus in our church. I'm pretty sure he's a Bengals fan. I might be wrong on this, but I think he is. And it, is that right? Is Cole a Bengals? Yeah, okay. Cole's a Bengals fan. I, he is the only Bengals fan I've ever met in my life. I didn't know there were Bengals fans. But now we are all Bengals fans because we love underdogs. So it's like, Bengals, let's go, right? So we love the underdog story. It's unexpected. It's surprising. It's beautiful. There's something built into us that, that loves it. This is a massive underdog story about the people of God and Moses leading them out from the strongest army at the time. It's this long journey into the wilderness, and uh, it, there's tension about how God will come through for them, and will they trust him? There's all of this going on. Can I ask you to just read this book over and over again? as we go through this. Can we just read this together as a church? Fair warning, you're going to get to the middle of it. There's some stuff that's going to be a little bit tough to get through. Just keep going. Read it a couple times. You'll start to pick up on some of the themes. Exodus is also an archetype, 
Meaning that although Pharaoh and Moses, these characters, they're, they're real people, uh, it's real history, they don't just represent themselves, but they represent sort of these bigger categories. So Pharaoh represents evil, the, the enemy of God, the enslaver of God's people. Moses was a real leader, a real rescuer, but he represents the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate redeemer. Okay, now I'm, I'm almost done on this, but I'm, I'm going to keep, or now I'm going to keep going, okay? We're almost there though, hang with me. So in what way is a true factual history also an archetype that's demonstrating symbols and teachings about how the world works and how do we live? How do those two things come together? How can it be a true story and an archetype? Well, because God wrote the book of Exodus, but he also wrote history. I, I think that's, that's amazing that God has planned history to move towards a certain goal, the redemption and liberation of the people of God through the chosen rescuer. That is the point of all of the history of the world. All of human history has been building towards that point. And Jesus Christ, inarguably, is the most dominant figure in history. You just can't argue with that fact that Jesus and the movement spurred on by him has transformed the world unlike any other figure in the history of the world. And there's a reason for that because of all of history had been building towards him. And all of history has been changed by him, and we're anticipating his second return where he will culminate all of history. It's, it's a story. Time itself has been written by God to build towards his redeemed people being liberated by his rescuer. And so because of that, we are living in the exact same story that the Israelites were living in Exodus. It's a different time period, but it's a continuation of the same thing that God has been doing throughout all of time. Okay, so in Exodus, we've got a true story that's teaching us about who we are and who God is and what it means to know him and follow him. So I said that, that Exodus is an epic. The first two chapters are the setting for the story. It's the, the introduction of the characters, the time and place, and it gives us sort of the framework on which it's going to build its story. So I want to look at the setting. I, I just want to look at what is this uh, setting up for us for the rest of our time in this series. Who are the main characters and what's their significance? Um, as well as what does this start to teach us about salvation and the nature of God? All right, so Exodus is a sequel of Genesis. So Genesis, we are tracking the movement of the promise of God made to a group of people. And here was the promise. I think this is important that they would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. I think that's one of the better ways I know of to describe actually the entire story of the Bible. And, and this promise was a seemingly audacious promise because it was made to Abraham, who was just a nobody in the middle of nowhere. He wasn't worshiping God. He was just kind of there, and God showed up and just started making promises to him. And Abraham was like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing now. And Abraham was also really old at the time, and the promise involved descendants. And, and they were beyond child-rearing age, and so they actually laughed at God, and so it seemed impossible, but God over and over again, when it seems like his promises are failing, it's the exact moment that he twists everything and brings about what he promised. And so that's how the Israelites, 
end up in Egypt is uh, at, at the close of the book of Genesis. They're in Egypt and everything is going really well for them, but it takes a turn for the worse really quickly in Exodus. So let's start to read that Exodus 1. We'll start in verse 8. <clears throat> now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Pithom and Ramses. So this is what's going on is, is Pharaoh is seeing that the Israelites are um, flourishing. They're multiplying and he gets afraid. And so he decides to systematically enslave them and abuse them so that they can't form a national identity and rebel against him. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So instead of being set free to worship and enjoy God, which was the promise that God had made to his people, God's people are slaves. And things are progressively getting worse and worse at a pretty rapid rate. The reason for that is because Pharaoh's plan isn't working. Look back at verse 12. But, they were more, uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in the in dread of the people of Israel. I love that. Pharaoh over and over again is trying to push down the Israelites to stop the work of God, but the harder he pushes, the more they multiply, the better they do. This is the history of the people of God. This is what it's been like every single time that the people of God have encountered something difficult. This is what it was like for the apostles when the Romans tried to stamp out the movement of Jesus. It just spread further into the Roman Empire. This is what it was like for the early Christian martyrs where they thought that, that if they persecuted the Christians that the movement would stop, but the movement just exploded under the faith of the martyrs. This is what it was like in the Reformation as this new movement, this new work of the gospel began to move throughout the world at the time. And it was tried to, to stamp out by the church at the time, but it just exploded as a result of that. This is what happened more modernly in China as the Chinese government tried to stop the church of Jesus Christ in China. And one of the greatest movements of the gospel, one of the greatest movements of the gospel that has ever happened, happened underground in China and has multiplied into millions of Christians across China. When the people of God are oppressed, they multiply. This is how it works. When stuff gets bad, the kingdom of Jesus keeps moving. Guys, this is our heritage. When things get hard for us, if it gets harder in culture, there's some nervousness around that. What it's, what's it going to be like for Christians and culture? Guys, we were made for that moment. That's our history and our heritage. We'll flourish under the blessing of God. That's what will happen. That's what was promised. That's what we've seen over and over again. That's what will happen again to the future. That's what happens to the people of God. And so Pharaoh's plan is not working. And so he, he decides to kind of elevate the plan, and this is, this is what he does. He decides to start to try to systematically kill off the Israelites. And so he talks to these Egyptian uh, midwives that are working with the Hebrews at the time. 
and he tells them that they need to, to kill every male that's born to a Hebrew woman. But these midwives are godly and heroic people. And so they disobey the command of Pharaoh to obey God, and they choose not to harm any of these babies. And then there's this amazing conversation that happens with Pharaoh where Pharaoh comes back to the midwives, and he's like, what's going on? Why haven't you listened to me? And the midwives are just like, the Hebrew women are really strong, and they just have babies immediately, and we just can't get there fast enough, which a lot of you in this room have had babies. That's not how it works at all. <laughs> it's far different than that. But I don't know if Pharaoh just has never seen a kid born or like he hasn't been involved in that process, but Pharaoh's like, okay, that makes sense. I need a different plan. And so uh, he continues to kind of escalate things. And so next, Pharaoh commands all of his people to kill any Hebrew male that's born and enter one of the darkest and most terrifying moments in the history of the people of God. Um. Can you imagine the fear of that? You have your child, and maybe you try to hide the child and keep it quiet so that no one can hear them. It's, it's just this horrible moment. But in this story, we have um, another heroine, Moses' mom, who kind of shrewdly, uh, after Moses is born, puts him in a basket close to where the Egyptians are bathing in hopes that maybe one of the Egyptians will sort of have mercy on her child and by the way, the word basket in the narrative is literally translated ark. It's the same word used for ark in Genesis. That's not an accident. And so Moses is put in the ark and floats down the water and is saved by not just a random Egyptian, but Pharaoh's household himself. Uh, his daughter takes in uh, Moses and then actually in this turn of events gives Moses back to his own mom who is able to sort of raise him up likely for a number of years and is paid by Pharaoh's household to do so. And then, but, and then in this other crazy turn of events, Moses is able to be raised within Pharaoh's household and trained as a leader and military uh, influencer, right? And so through this turn of events, he becomes this incredible sort of uh, leader trained within Pharaoh's household, the exact opposite of what Pharaoh planned happens immediately kind of under his roof. And so after all of this, there's a gap, and then there's this entrance into public life by Moses. We'll pick that up in chapter 2, verse 11. So Moses is going to make his public entrance and sort of declare whose side he's on, and then immediately he'll have to kind of go off into the desert as a result of what happened. So let's read it. <clears throat> One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked at, on all their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So that's kind of where the story will, will end here for a while. We've got Moses declared as uh, this person trying to lead the Hebrews, uh, but Pharaoh hears of it, and Moses has to flee off into the desert, into the wilderness for a long period of time. So that's sort of where we're at in this story. So let's look at these main characters within this story. 
So one of the main characters, again, we're kind of being given the setting for the rest of our story. So the main characters, number one here is Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is the enslaver and oppressor. He's the enemy of God, and he's the bringer of death. And again, this is who he was, but it also represents sort of some greater concepts. All right, Moses. Moses is the miraculous underdog. He, he's siding with the Hebrews. He's a murderer. I don't know if you caught that. Moses was a murderer. He, he sees an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting, and he looks around to see if anybody else is watching and kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. That's just what happens in the story. He is a rescuer and a redeemer. So he, in that moment, uh, is rescuing that Hebrew person. But there's also this little detail later when he's in the wilderness where he talks about uh, these women that are, that are at a well and there's these shepherds that are sort of bothering them and Moses comes in and fights off the shepherds for these women, which is just kind of a random story, especially when you're covering as much time as this is covering. I think it's put there intentionally to demonstrate that this is within Moses, that he fights for the oppressed. He fights for the people uh, that are being harmed. He's a rescuer. Moses is also rejected by both Egypt and his, his own people. So I just want to ask you, do you see some of the, the symbolism here? Do, do any of these aspects in particular of who Moses is sound a little familiar to you? Do they point forward to another story that we've heard? So in Moses' life, right, a king declares that all children should be killed. Yet in spite of all of that, to God's people, a child is born. A son is given. And he's, he's raised up, and as soon as his public ministry is declared, Moses immediately goes off into the wilderness to meet with God. Does that sound familiar? Death is declared over his life by Pharaoh, the enemy of God, but through the edict of death, he brings life to the people of God. Like, like do you see the genius of God in this text? That, that centuries before Jesus would ever walk the earth, he gives us a type of salvation, a prediction of what the great rescuer would be like one day. He gives us this, this framework for what salvation for the people of God always has and always will be like. Do you see it? Moses liberated the Hebrew people from slavery. Jesus will liberate all people who will come to him from slavery to sin and death. Moses delivered his people by risking his life. Jesus delivered his people by giving his life. Moses intervened in the fight between the Hebrew and the Egyptian, and he killed the Egyptian. Jesus intervened in the fight between the people of God and death itself, and Jesus killed death. Moses opposed the tyranny of Pharaoh. Jesus opposed the tyranny of death, sin, and Satan, and everything evil. Moses is the royal king who sides with the humble people. Jesus was the divine king who sided with humanity. This is the genius of God. That the underdog people of God with seemingly no hope and no way out, enslaved, that's what it's like without God, is we're, we're slaves with no freedom, desperate for a rescuer, are sent the chosen royal redeemer to pull us out of slavery and to give us hope. That's the framework of salvation that we see all throughout the Bible. Here's the other main character in the story, God. God. 
which is, you, you almost could miss it because God, at least seemingly, is noticeably absent from this story. So if you were to read the first two chapters, you wouldn't really see God's name mentioned until the very end of chapter 2, which is a very odd thing, especially at this point in the Bible. And as things are progressively getting worse and worse, so the people of God go from having favor in Egypt to being enslaved to then having attempted genocide on them by a few people, to then having attempted genocide on them by the entire people of Egypt. So things are progressively getting worse and worse at a rapid rate, and it seems like God is absent. Where is God when the people of God are coming under this type of persecution? And his name isn't really even mentioned in the story, and I think that that is intentional. Because I think here what we're learning is that even when God seems like he's absent, he's still working. He's working behind the scenes. Even when you can't totally see it. And he's turning the very things intended for evil into something good. That's what God does. When the world gets crazy and things in our life get hard, we as the people of God get curious. We lean in, not out. And when things get hard, we go, where's God? Because I know he's here. The assumption we have is that God is behind the scenes working for our good because all of the evidence we have would point to that reality and we know that of his character. And so we lean in and we say, God, where, where are you? It's not as much, God, kind of the questioning, where are you? It's the, where are you? I'm looking for you. I want to find you. I want to see your, your beauty as you work behind the scenes. We lean in because he's using the very things we would interpret as negative to accomplish his salvation. Evil in the world is, is a paintbrush to God to paint his artistic handiwork. He uses it as a tool for his own purposes. It's like judo. So the sport of, of judo, I'm told by my friend Google, uh, is, uh, is about the kind of the main idea is maximum efficiency with minimum effort as you're sort of engaging in this combat. Maximum efficiency with minimum effort. The way you do that is by using your opponent's body weight against them, okay? So if you're, if you're like locked in with them and you're both pushing against each other, you, you sort of step back and let them fall and then go with them. So you're using their own momentum against them. That's what God is doing here. Do you see that? Pharaoh is, is throwing a punch and God is letting him do it and then just kind of pulling his hand down and Pharaoh's falling. And he gets discouraged and so Pharaoh just starts flailing. And every single one of the punches that Pharaoh pulls... That got tough there. Um, every single one of his punches, God is using for the exact opposite purpose. Man, I love that. It's not only that God is fighting against Pharaoh and not letting Pharaoh do whatever he wants, but he's using everything Pharaoh does for the exact opposite thing that Pharaoh wants to accomplish. So Pharaoh institutes oppression and slavery, which causes the increase of the people of God. That's what verse 12 says. There's, there's this edict to kill all Hebrew males, which causes Moses to be formed as the perfect liberator, raised and trained in Pharaoh's own household to eventually fight 
Pharaoh. There, there's this, this pain put on the people of God by Pharaoh, which ultimately causes the people of God to cry out to God. And God responds to those prayers of his people. Ultimately, Pharaoh, his ultimate worst nightmare is that the Israelites would escape and fight against him. And what we're about to see in this story is not only will they escape, but they'll plunder Egypt as they go. And not only will they fight against them, but God himself will fight against them. All of evil's purposes are flipped on their head. Where in your life do you tend to get discouraged? Do you tend to question God? to wonder where he is. Maybe for you, it's kind of a macro thing as you see some of what's going on in the world or you think about um, sort of the problem of evil, like how does evil exist in the world? Maybe for you, it's very and intensely personal. Maybe for you, it's more just a vague sense of you, you can't really experience the presence of God and you, you don't know why you can't seemingly hear from him more or experience him more. And your, your temptation will be to conclude that the reason why you can't see God working is because he's not working. That's been the temptation of, of human beings really forever, is to conclude that when we can't see God working, that he's not working. Which I just want to point out is, is just bad logic. <laughs> it, just because you can't see something working doesn't mean that it's not working. One conclusion would be that God isn't working. The other conclusion would be that you're not omniscient. <laughs> and you don't understand everything that's going on in the world. And that you can't fully understand the character of God and you need to wait and to see what he would do. So my daughter Joy is super into peekaboo right now. She's like in that phase. Kids love them some peekaboo, right? Right? Because they're shocked by it. They're surprised by it. You get down there and you kind of do the thing and they're like, where'd he go? You know, and you, peekaboo, whoa, he's back, you know? Like, to, to some degree, they think that you're actually disappearing. But adults know better. Like, you don't get together with your friends for a big game of peekaboo, right? That's not, like, we're not, we're not impressed by that. Because we know it's just not entertaining. It's like, you're just behind your hands, right? You're, you're still there. So we know better. When God feels like he's absent, it's your temptation to conclude that he just disappeared, that he's just not there. But in reality, there's just something in front of your face. Maybe it's your sin, maybe it's your, your doubts, maybe it's your fears, maybe it's just kind of a moment of dryness, and you get so consumed with whatever that circumstance is that it's all you can see. And, and we tend to conclude that because we can't see him, that he just disappeared, <laughs> which is a foolish conclusion. Here's what's really happening, is God is right there on the other side of whatever circumstance that is, smiling at you, leaning into you, wanting to know you, wanting to be with you. He hasn't left you. That's not what he's like. He's there. And so in those moments, it's actually arrogance in us to panic. But humility looks like trust even when we don't understand. We're learning as well here in that trust what salvation looks like. We're being given this framework for salvation as the delivery from slavery and death. 
to come out into freedom in life, which is sort of how it'll be a theme throughout this narrative throughout of what slavery is, or excuse me, what salvation is. And part of the way God's people start to access that salvation is by crying out to God when things get hard. And God knows their voice and he responds. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So let me throw out a couple of theological words to you here. Transcendence and imminence. Transcendence and imminence. So the transcendence of God is how he's beyond and above our ability to experience or grasp or understand him. And this is shown all over the book of Exodus. It's shown in the plagues where he's controlling nature. It's, it's shown here in our text where God is sort of manipulating things for his purposes behind the scenes. It's shown later when the, the most powerful army in the world is defeated by God and he delivers his people out walking on dry ground. That's the, the transcendence of God, that he's above and controlling everything. He's, he's mysterious. And it would be easy to think of God as distant and terrifying because of that reality of his character. But here we're also seeing that God is imminent, meaning he's, he's near, he's, he's knowable, he's, he's relatable, he, he's entering into the pain and the cries of his people. So it, it says in that paragraph that God remembered and that he knew, which is a little bit of an odd thing to, to say about God, or at least it seems odd to us, because God never forgets anything, and he knows everything. So why do you have to say that God remembered and that he knew? Well, it's saying that he remembered in the sense that he's calling his people forward to mind. He's, he's leaning in towards them. He's, he's investing himself in their pain. And it says that he knew, meaning he relationally knows. It, uh, the, the word know, biblically, is often this remarkably intimate word. It's used for the way that, that a husband and a wife know one another, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. And God is using that word here to say, I know you. Listen, whatever is going on, God knows. I can't put my finger on it exactly in your life because I don't know. God knows. He doesn't just know in an abstract sense. He knows in a deeply intimate personal sense where he's leaning into whatever that point of pain, whatever that point of sin, whatever that secret is, whatever that fear is, God is leaning into it. He knows. And he wants to know you through it. He wants to use that, that evil, that brokenness as a mechanism for his good, for your good, for his purposes in your life. I remember I was at a conference in, in college uh, through, through the Salt Company. I, I came up kind of through that, that ministry. And we were at a conference. And I forget exactly what was going on, but I was really struggling. And I felt a lot of guilt over sin in my life. And I was, I was struggling with like my, my mental health. And I was just really, I was doubting God. And so I was kind of off to the side praying. And I was just, you know, God, I, I, 
I'm doubting your goodness. I'm doubting your existence. I feel afraid. I feel guilty. I feel like you've, you've left me. I feel shame. And then a person that I didn't know came up over to me and introduced themselves and said, hey, can I just pray for you? I, I just felt like I should pray for you. I know it's a little bit odd, but I just kind of felt like that's what I should do. And he started praying for me. And he prayed, God, I think Jordan is doubting you right now. And I just want you to encourage him and let him be confident in your presence. I think he feels guilt and shame over some things in his life. I, I just want you to help him experience your, your forgiveness. Um, I think he's struggling with uh, maybe some, some mental health or, or depression or something like that. And I, I just want you to, to fill that with hope and joy. Literally prayed every single thing that I was just talking to God about. Here's what was going on in that moment. Is God, through that person, was saying, I know you. I see you. And I'm with you. I haven't left you. It's one thing for God to know abstractly. It's another for him to personally know. And for you to know him. One of the greatest parts about salvation is that we get to know God. The even better part is that God knows us. He knows. And in particular, he's attuned to the cries of pain in his people's life. He hears the suffering in our voice. And he leans in to respond. He wants to fight for us. And that's what God will do. This is setting it up for God to come battle for his people. To rescue his suffering and oppressed people. And to set them free. That's what God does. He brings his defense on their behalf. And so the solution to suffering and uncertainty and doubt is to believe that God knows you, that he's not absent from you, and, and to bring that cry of suffering to him in the trust that he hears your voice and he'll respond. And the second solution to suffering is that God fights for us. That he responds to his people in our pain. He will liberate us. He will redeem us. That is the center of his heart. And so cry out to him for freedom and he'll hear your cry. Let's pray. Father, I want to cry out to you on behalf of the hurting people in this room, for the people that are losing someone that they love. Lord, we cry out to you in their pain. We ask for help and for mercy for the people that feel like they can't know you personally. God, we bring that to you and just proclaim the truth that you, you want to know your people and you're leaning into us and you're not hiding from us. And I pray that they would hear your voice, believe in your goodness and your kindness to them. 
God, for people who feel caught in sin and have given up, just realistically have, for the most part, stopped fighting out of a lack of hope. Would they see you as the warrior God who fights for his people and know that you, you want to fight for them against their sin and their brokenness and, and let them have hope again? God, right now, I don't know all of the cries, all of the pain in our church. You do. You know every single one. You know every single pain more than even those people know it themselves. Lord, we welcome your presence here. We want to know you and be known by you. We trust you. We need your salvation. God, we pray that you would free us from slavery to sin and death, from slavery to, to brokenness and pain. You would set us free, God. Let us live as your people in your kingdom. We want you. We want to know you. We want to be known by you. God, lastly, pray for those that are afraid, either anxious or afraid of a conversation they need to have or afraid of really following you. Let them know that there's safety in you. The only dangerous thing is rejecting you, but accepting you, there's safety and there's peace. Lord, bring your presence and your peace to us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.